0: It's good to see all of you again this week, and I trust that all of you had a, a nice time with your family and a good time during Thanksgiving. And, um, you know, I serve as one of the elders here. My name is Jacob Yarbrough, and, and I invite you to read along with me this morning as I read from God's Word. We'll be reading from the book of Malachi, Malachi chapter 3, verses 7 through 15. Malachi chapter 3, verses 7 through 15. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Then I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it may not destroy the fruit, the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. And all the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be... A delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against thee? You have said, it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his charge and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. And may God bless the reading of his word. Thank All,
1: right. All right, good morning. Well, thank you for being here today. Uh, this is kind of, a, I'm sure a lot of people are traveling today, and there's a lot of people out sick today. But thank you for being here this morning. What does the scripture say? It says, "Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Amen. Well, today we're in Malachi chapter 3. Today we'll be going from verses 7 through 15. We'll actually be covering dispute number 5 and dispute number 6. And if you've been here for any length of time, then you know the fall semester, what we're doing is we're going through three different minor prophets of the Old Testament. We spent two weeks going through the book of Obadiah. Obadiah in a word is the word of pride. It's the pride of the Edomites towards the nation of Israel. And then we spend four weeks going through the book of Haggai. Haggai in a word is mission that God gives to a man named Zerubbabel the mission to rebuild the temple. And then we go into the book of Malachi. We'll finish it up next week. We'll spend I think seven weeks going through the book of Malachi in total. And the book of Malachi in a word is genuine. So we are in our ninth week in our series of this, uh, in the series of the minor prophets. and. And if you remember, the book of Malachi is organized into six different disputes, six different arguments between the nation of Israel and God. And you see this, um, I mean, I just said uh, this, this dispute or this argument between God. I mean, that would be pretty dangerous to argue with God. Okay, um, you know, he might displace your hip if you do it too much. Um, but <laughs> if you didn't catch that joke, then anyways, uh, just read Jacob and his life. Okay, Um you see this wrestling match between the nation of Israel and between God. You see this argument. And it covers a, a variety of different topics uh, as he goes through these six different disputes. And dispute number five talks about the issue of tithes. Or we would say money. And dispute number six talks about the issue of our words. What we say about God and what we say in our private life. That got me thinking, what are the two biggest stressors in life? Probably how we should spend or save our money, and then what do I say? But how many of you have ever been stressed out by saying the wrong thing to somebody? How many of you have ever circled back with someone and apologized for what you ever said to them? Okay. Okay. So the two, two of the biggest stressors in life are money and are what we actually say. I mean, let me just, let's just talk about money for just a second. Um, how many of you have ever had an argument over money before? Okay, every person that's ever lived, especially if you've been married. I mean, money is something that causes us stress. Money is something that causes people to treat us differently. I mean, if you roll up to a restaurant in a Ferrari, you know, people will treat you differently than if you rolled up to that same restaurant in my 1996 pink Dodge Neon, okay? That thing had an AM, FM radio, and it was cool, okay? I did not look cool in it as a 19-year-old guy. Um, But money dictates – it's stressful. It dictates the way people see you, the way people treat you. But even more than that, money is actually deeply spiritual. It shapes the way you view God, that if you have a lot of money, you're less apt to trust him. Um, it, it shapes the way you view yourself, the way you view other people. It can dictate how much you trust God, how much you identify, how your sense of self-worth. And so what? malachi chapter 3 does he just talks about the issue of tithes and offerings in chapter 3 verses 7 through 12 then he talks about the issue of words and what we say to god so if you have your bible turn to malachi chapter 3 and today we'll be talking about tithes and offerings and then also our words as i've said money is is deeply spiritual, we think it 's only been something that 's been around since the uh, the nation of America I mean, we know it to be true, we know it 's older than that, uh, but believe it or not, Jesus spoke more about money than any other topic in the New Testament. He knew that it is deeply ingrained in our being and in our spiritual life. What does he say? where your treasure is there your heart will be also so but when we talk about money we often talk about our habits and control but as i was studying this 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 passage what i realized is that words and money reveal something they reflect something deep down in each of us what do they reflect what do they reveal about our relationship with god so if you have your text, notice Malachi chapter 3. Dispute number 5 goes from verses 7 through 12. And dispute number 6 goes from verse yeah, from verse 13 through 15. But let us very quickly set the stage for our discussion this morning, just so we have a good understanding of where we've been. The reason I One of the reasons why I do a little bit of review every Sunday morning is so, if you've missed some, you can kind of catch up with us and understand where we are. Uh, the theme of almost every single minor prophet is what? That covenant blessing requires covenant faithfulness. That the nation of Israel want to experience the blessing and the favor of God? That God requires of them that they would abide by covenant faithfulness or that they would obey the Old Testament law that we see and we'll see in Deuteronomy chapter 28 specifically. That if they follow the Lord, if they obey the commandments, God will bless them. But if they do not, God will curse them. And the book of Malachi, as has been shared, is the last book written in the Old Testament. And it's a very fitting book to end the Old Testament canon because it really drills down into a deep relationship with God it unpacks so many different areas of our walk with God. And it's just God's last simming memo to the nation of Israel before the 400 years of silence. I mean, think about all of the topics he talks about in Malachi. He talks about, okay, how can the Israel know for sure that God truly does love them? How many of you have ever struggled with the thought, you know, does God really love me? I mean, you know it to be true... You know, Bible verses, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. But then as we live, as we go through life, we look at our circumstances and our life is just falling apart. And then we just question the loving kindness of the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. But we struggle to believe that in the midst of dark times. Am I the only one? Okay, thank you. Um, I don't feel lonely anymore. Okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> You know, the book of Malachi talks about God's love. It also talks about what it means to genuinely worship the Lord. That we shouldn't just offer the Lord our seconds, our thirds, but we should give the Lord our best. Amen. And then God talks about the sanctity and how to protect the most sacred of human covenants of marriage. He talks about our words, our money. He talks about the unfairness and our desire for justice in this life. And it's just one last memo to the nation of Israel right before he shuts off communication for the next 400 years and he appears with the messenger of the covenant in in my message to prepare the way and what he does in the last two different disputes he talks about their tithes and offerings and when that word tithe It just means one-tenth, and we'll talk about what it kind of means for us, but also what it means in the nation of Israel. He talks about our tithes and offerings, and also talks about our words that we say, and those two are the kryptonite to most of us, how we spend our money and what we say behind closed doors, and he has some practical instruction to help us kind of live that out. And so what he does, he picks up in verse 7, he is calling the nation back to himself, and, and he calls them back. By talking about their tithes and offerings. I find that ironic. Notice what it says in verse 7. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Now if you notice here, he points out a pattern of behavior. From the days of your father, you have turned aside from my statutes, my laws, my covenants, and have not kept them. And this is a generational sin. That since the time of Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel, that Israel has struggled to fully obey the commandments of the Lord. I mean, generational sin. That's a real thing. How many of you have ever been like, oh my goodness, I'm turning into my mother. Okay? All right. As there's nothing different here in the nation of Israel. That from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes. I mean, think about from the, from the very beginning of the nation of Israel. Think about from the man named Abraham. He turned aside from what he knew to be right and good. He knew that Isaac was the son of the promise. But he got what? He got impatient he had a child out of wedlock. guy named Ishmael. What else did he do? He gave his wife to, I think it was Pharaoh off the top of my head, right? He gave her away. Well, thanks a lot. Okay. From the days of your fathers, you have constantly turned aside from me. And we see in the minor prophets, we see in the Old Testament this this pattern, right? That they have success, and then they have pride, and then they rebel, and then God punishes them. then God sends a rede- deliverer, and then they have success, and so forth and so on. And God is just pointing out to the nation of Israel that you are constantly turning away from me, turning aside from my statutes, and have not kept them. And notice this last phrase right here, have not kept them. Um, You'll see that in verse, I think it's in verse 13, 14, and 15. You'll see an ironic statement. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return to you? So this is the beginning of dispute number five. And it follows the pattern of all the other disputes. Notice how he calls them back. So every dispute in the book of Malachi has three pieces. You have God's allegation. You have Israel's response with a question, and then you have God's answer. How does he call them back? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me, but you say, how have we robbed you in tithes and offerings? I mean, this is the fifth argument between the nation of Israel. And he has just said in verse 7 that your fathers have turned aside from me and... um It makes me grateful that we serve a God that forgives us of our sin. Amen. Because if we didn't, first off, we wouldn't have salvation in his son. And then we also couldn't just approach him with all of our issues. And then here he constantly is forgiving the nation of Israel. And here he calls them back. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. This is his allegation. And then essentially their response. But you say, how have we robbed you in tithes and offerings? What, what, what's, the, what's the issue here with the nation of Israel? What are, the, what are they struggling with? How do we rob God? I mean, it's easy for us to think about robbing a store or robbing a bank, okay? I mean, if you rob a bank, what do you do? You take money out of the bank. If you rob something from a convenience store, you take Snickers and you put it in your pocket and you walk out. And so it's hard for Israel here to conceptualize that they are robbing the Lord, um, but that's what God says. And how are they robbing Him? By their tithes and offerings. I think they're struggling with the paradigm of that they are robbing God by not giving to the Lord. One scholar says this, that in this particular section, God confronts their selfishness and shows how they have stopped offering a tithe of their income to the temple. Now, the word tithe just means one-tenth. It is the amount of income and produce that Israel was, was to annually donate to support the temple and its priests. And the practice is laid out in different parts of the Torah. This scholar continues. Now, we know from Malachi in the book of Nehemiah that the people were neglecting this responsibility. So the temple was falling into disrepair. So God confronts them and he wants to bless them with abundance, but only if they're going to be faithful covenant. Blessing requires covenant faithfulness, that they are not being faithful to the covenant to provide for the temple of one-tenth of their produce and of their income. And God calls them back by talking about their finances. Money is deeply spiritual. You can... If (laughs) I won't do this, uh, you can't do it for me. Okay. But you would learn a lot about somebody if you actually looked at their bank statement, right? And you would learn about a lot about their priorities, right? If you see McDonald's, 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 McDonald's. Okay. You're going to learn a lot about them. Okay. If you see, you know, all these other items, I think there's this misnomer in church culture is that money is just this thing that we have that really isn't relevant to my spiritual life. But that's not true in the slightest. I think money is deeply spiritual. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What does he say what does Jesus say in Matthew nineteen verse twenty four? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. If you have money, it's more difficult to trust God for what you need. It's easy to trust God when you're desperate, amen, when you don't have a lot. But when you have abundance, it's much more difficult to trust the Lord. But I want to say something really quick. Money reflects. It does not determine. Let me say that again. Money reflects. It does not determine. It reflects your view of God and your relationship to him, but it does not determine your relationship with him. You know, here, God calls the nation of Israel to give one-tenth, the word tithe means one-tenth of their income and their produce. And I was just talking um, before the service today, I was talking about how my wife one time was, I think I was going through the Gospel of John And, you know, if you know John, I mean, I I think I spent two years going through the Gospel of John, and it is a exercise in repetition, okay? And preaching the Gospel of John is not a very exciting, (laughs) I guess it should be, I mean, it's all the Word of God, but to a preacher, you're preaching, pretty much saying the same thing again and again and again and again. And my wife just said, you know, Barn, you're going to bore me. Um, And I just said, you know, I, I am a slave to the text. I don't talk about money, I don't talk about tithing, I don't talk about giving unless it's in the scripture. And it's here. So we're just gonna talk about it. Right? I'd rather just be honest. Here the nation God calls the nation of Israel to give a tenth of their income and produce to support the temple and we'll find out why. Um I think ten percent, if if you've never heard any preacher talk about this, let's just talk about it. Let's it, not get weird about it. I think 10% is a good benchmark to have. I don't think God is going to, you know, look at your bank account and say you only gave 9.9%. I don't think, you know, Dave Ramsey says 10% is a hard and fast rule if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. You know, I think 10% is a good benchmark. And by the way, I have no idea what any of you give. Not, not one clue, okay? The only person I know how much get, they give is this guy right here. That's it, Okay. I think 10% of our income is a good benchmark for Christians to give to the church and give to the work of God, but I'm not hard and fast about it. And I just believe that money reflects, it does not determine. Notice verse 9. Will a man rob God, yet you are robbing me, but you say, how have we robbed you in tithes and offerings? And since you haven't given me 10% of your income and in produce, you are... Cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Now notice here, I would imagine that there are some people in the nation of Israel that are giving 10% of their income and produce. They are giving it to the Lord's work. But notice here, it says the whole nation of you, that all of them are going to be punished for the lack of sincerity to give to the Lord's work and to support the work of the temple. And he says, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me. Um, what does he mean by that? You are cursed with a curse. What does he mean by curse? What does he mean by that in the Old Testament? If you have your Bible, go to Deuteronomy 28. I don't don't turn too much to other passages, and so you can go there if you want to. But I just kind of ask the question, what does a curse in the Old Testament consist of? And it's really found in Deuteronomy chapter 28. The name Deuteronomy means the second giving of the law. So you have Leviticus is the first giving of the law, and Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. And this is what the Lord means by curse. Deuteronomy 28, verse 1 talks about the blessing side, and then verse 15 talks about the curse side. Now it shall be, if you diligently obey the Lord your God, this is verse 1, be careful to do all His commandments, which I have commanded you today, the Lord your God, will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord. Blessings shall be in the city and in the country and the offspring of your body, the produce of your ground. So you see the blessing of the Lord in verses 1 through 6. But then notice the curse. And this is what God is pronouncing on the nation of Israel for not giving to the Lord's work. Verse 15, but it shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe, to do all his commandments and his statutes with which I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. This is, these are the curses. It has to be at least one of these. Cursed shall be in the city. Cursed shall be in the country. Cursed shall be your baskets and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be offspring of your body and your produce of the ground. Cursed shall be, shall you... Be when you come in and curse it shall you be when you go out. Okay. 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 what What is he saying? That because they haven't obeyed the Lord, that the blessing of the Lord is put on pause. And because they haven't supported the Lord's work by giving of their tithes and offerings, that the Lord is going to pronounce a curse upon the land. And particularly here, I believe he's talking about the curse upon their produce, because if you notice in the future verses, he talks about kind of the produce of the land as a whole. Um, notice with me, verse ten: Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in the ha- in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse and notice the outcome if they do so that there may be food in my house. So in other words, what? That the temple, think about this, the irony of this situation that a man named Zerubbabel spent years building the temple and then 85 years later, his great, great grandchildren have just completely dismissed the care of the temple and the care of the priest by not giving the whole tithe to the temple and... If it's fallen into disrepair, and it says, I will not, and I will, and if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Let me me say something real quick. Catch what I'm about to say. Money reflects, not determines. Money reflects your heart and your relationship with God. It does not determine your relationship with God. I think people take this verse to mean that if I give the whole tithe, if I give the Lord, then the Lord will return his blessing upon me tenfold. Um, there's nowhere in the Bible that somebody could justify that saying. That there is this uh, culture in churches, especially on television, of this prosperity gospel that if I give to the Lord, he is then obligated to give me a return on my investment. I think one of the one of the struggles that we have with money in our particular culture is that in our culture money does determine it determines our self-worth it determines how people treat you that if you go to McDonald's and you spend five dollars on a hamburger guess what you get a five dollar hamburger probably more like a 30 cent hamburger they got to make a profit but anyways moving on um If you roll up to a restaurant, like I said, in a Ferrari, that determines how people treat you. But money doesn't do that with God. It reflects our relationship with God. It does not determine it. Uh, There are prosperity gospel preachers that preach kind of this health and wealth stuff that if you give to the Lord, then he's obligated to give you tenfold in return. Um, If anybody ever says that here, can you do me a favor? Um, take the pew, the hymnal, not the Bible, the hymnal, and throw it at that guy, okay? Um, don't. That's not what the Scripture says. Money reflects your relationship with God. It reflects if you trust Him. It reflects if you support His work. It does not determine it. Why? It's because all we have is God's anyways. That every dollar that he has given to us is his anyways. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And he's given us some portion to take care of and to manage appropriately. And what he asks us of in return is to give to his work. I mean, giving to the church is a theme in the New Testament. I'm not going to say. There's some people that have a hard and fast rule that 10% is, you know, black and white like Dave Ramsey. I'm not like that. I think if the Lord has blessed you abundantly that you should give more than 10%. You know, the Lord has blessed my wife and I over the last few years, so we've given far more than 10% of our income. I won't tell you any more than that because it's none of your business, as Dave Ramsey would say. But the Lord has just blessed us. You know, I think that's a good benchmark. We should give back to the Lord. Money reflects, it does not determine. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows... And if they will just simply give 10% of their money, of their produce and income, then what he will do is, I will rebuke the devourer for you. A lot of people think that word devourer refers to plagues and insects. So that it will not destroy the fruits of your ground. So that's what I think he's talking about in the curse in verse 9. The curse that he's going to pronounce upon the land of Israel is a curse upon their produce. The fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast It's great, says the Lord of hosts. Their tithe reflects their heart for God. And then notice what will happen as a consequence of them giving to the Lord and His work. All the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. Money reflects, it does not determine. The nations around all the nations will call you blessed for two different reasons. Number one is because the Lord will open up the windows of heaven for them, that they will be obedient and then they will have success. Um, but I think also is the nations are watching Israel. Uh, the nation of Israel is a light to the world. And I think that the temple, the care of the temple, in the nation of Israel is communicating a message to the world as a whole. I mean, think about it. Let's say you're a Palestinian and we don't have to go there, in 500 BC at the time of Malachi, and you worship Baal, okay, and you give your 10% to the temple, and all the people that you know do the same thing, and then you look at the nation of Israel and look at their temple, and their temple is in complete disrepair, and God doesn't do anything about it. What are you thinking? Maybe their God is in the one true God because he lets them get away with that. I mean, think about what are they offering to the Lord? They're not offering to the Lord their best. It says in the early in the book of Malachi that they are offering their lame and their blind. If you're a foreigner looking into the nation of Israel and you're seeing that Israel is offering their lame and the blind and they're not giving to the Lord and his work, what are you saying to yourself? Well, their God must not be the one true God because he lets them get away with that. But their tithe, their care of the temple, their sacrifices reflect upon the Lord and his nature. And who is their God? He's not just some graven image, but that he is the one true God. He is a self-existent one. And he wants his name to go forth to all the nations and to be great. Can I just say something really quick? Um, The temple reflects God's greatness to the nations as a whole. Can I just say something really quick? Um, If you've noticed around here, I've been here for six years. That's crazy, man. I have a lot more gray hair than I used to have. But... um, If you've noticed over the last six years, we have spent a lot of time and a lot of money fixing up the property. You know, anybody else notice that? Okay, that's not for consumerism. Please don't. That's not the reason. I think it reflects upon us as a body, but it also reflects upon the name of God. If we have mud and and leaky roofs, and you know things are falling apart here, what does that say to people on the outside? That maybe they don't really It reflects upon the name of God. We don't have to have the latest and greatest. We probably never will. But I think we should care for what the Lord has given to us. And this is the same thing here. That the name of God goes forth by how they treat the temple. So we see this sense of giving. That they should offer genuine tithes and offerings. That they should give 10% of their income and produce to the work of the Lord. And then the Lord will bless them. But then... He talks about their words. Like I said, two things that will reveal your relationship with God is how we spend our money. And also, number two, what our words are in private. Your words have been arrogant against me. This is dispute number six, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You have said, notice this part. It is vain to serve the Lord. Notice this next phrase. And what profit is it? That we (laughs) have kept his charge and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts. Wait a second. What did they just say they did? And what prophet is it that we have kept his charge? Um, How many of you have ever met somebody that says they're a Christian but lives completely different than that? that's these people they claim to have been serving the lord it is vain to serve god why is it vain because what profit is it that we have kept his charge they think that they're obeying god i mean they think that sacrificing their lame and blind animals hey hey at least i tried that's kind of their logic Instead of actually obeying what the Lord has asked them, that they would offer a spotless lamb, that they would give the Lord their best, that they're saying, what profit is it that we have kept his charge? I mean, how many people have you ever known that, that have been discouraged in their life and they say, man, I follow the Lord, I did everything he ever asked me to do, and just things went to, I think sometimes we think that we really obey God, but we really aren't. Um, What do our words reflect? What do they reveal about our relationship with God? And then notice how he ends in verse 15. So now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test the Lord and they escape. They become so disillusioned. They feel like they've obeyed the Lord. They feel like they've been obedient. They're so discouraged from the curse of their land that they come to this conclusion at the very end of Malachi. So now we call all the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. It's the same thing in dispute number four. What does he say? That basically God delights in evil. That those who are wicked escape the test of God. That God lets the wicked get away with it. So all of this following God is futility. Who cares? And then God ends the book in two different pieces. We'll see next week in verses 16 through 18. God tells them a short story. And then God concludes with an eschatological promise at the end to reorient the nation of Israel To truly follow him. Um, Let me say this again. Money reflects, does not determine. Money reveals our ability to trust God. But it does not determine our relationship with God. Our words reveal our relationship with God. You know, as I thought about this book as a whole, this week I kind of just took a step back from, from it all, and I just said, okay, Lord, okay, what, what's what's the memo? What are you really trying to get at? Think about it. He, uh, he talks about their worship. He talks about their view of God's love. He talks about their marriages. He talks about their view and desire for justice and fairness. He talks about their money struggles. He talks about their worst struggles. What is he really driving at? What does God really want from the nation of israel and from us today i think a lot of i think what we do in a lot of christian circles is that we work on habit control that we make sure our exterior body conforms to a certain image so we can impress people in the church or at work and then our internal world is completely and totally different our words and our pocketbook Reflect how we view God. Would you guys agree with that? This is what it reveals genuine ties, money reflects, and words reflect this the place of God in your life. The place of God in your life. I feel like in the book of Malachi, this is what God has been driving at for the entire time. Is God first, or is he second, or third, or fourth? Is God the supreme being of their life? And if he is, then why are they sacrificing their seconds, their leftovers? Why are they giving the whole tithe to the Lord? Why are they saying that God is a a God that that doesn't have justice? Money reflects and word reflects the place of God in our life. So the question is this, is so what? How do we apply this to our life? The real issue there, their their actions of worship, of marriage, of fairness, reflect their relationship with God. And what they really reveal is God first. The problem is not habit control. It is their view of the Lord. If God were first in their lives, then worship would follow. If God were first in their lives... Their love would follow. If God were first in their lives, their giving would follow. If God were first in their lives, then they would treasure their marriages. If God were first in their lives, they would control the words. Um, I'm just going to say something really quick. I, I, um, I have the propensity as a preacher to, uh, to uh, come down as condemning and um and that's not my intention ever because i know we all struggle and me included that we all struggle with making god first in our lives putting him in the first place i've um over the last six years i've gotten a lot of feedback (laughs) both good and bad um i try to speak the truth in love okay and so today is not meant to be you know get better a pet talk it's not my heart at all behind this um my heart for when i preach is just to see the word of god as it is and then apply it to our lives and so the question i'm about to ask in no way is condemning or anything like that it's just an honest question okay fair 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 okay thank you Um, where is, where is God in your life? Is he first or is he second? It's a simple question. And what the book of Malachi does is it forces you to look at so many different areas of your spiritual life. I would imagine some of us here today, God is first on our pocketbook, but he may be second in our, you know, second in the way I treat my wife. The way I treat my spouse, God might be first in the way I treat my spouse, but it may not be honored in how I spend my money. My question is this: Is what place is God in your life? Is He first, or is He second, or is He third? I think sometimes we um, we're like Israel. You know, we think we've made Him first in our life, but really He's not. And then we look around and we wonder why. Our life might be falling apart. What place is God in your life? That's all I'm asking. And I'm not, this is a a question I've asked myself all week. And I just went through the book of Malachi and I just looked at every single different dispute. Okay, Byron, do you really believe that God truly does love you and care for you? That's dispute number one. Byron, do you really believe that God cares about how you worship Him in your everyday life? Not just on Sunday mornings, not just by raising your hand, not just by singing songs, but in every single moment of every day that God is worshiped one way or the other. What does it say in 1 Corinthians 10? Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Amen? That's just the way it is. How is, is God first in my daily life of worship? Is God first in my marriage? Do I treat my spouse The way God will be honored. Ouch. Do I view my pocketbook as it's all God's anyways? He's given him just a little bit to manage well. And if I manage it well, it'll grow. But the Lord asks me to return his money to him for the work of ministry. Do I view God as first in my pocketbook? Do I view God as first in my mouth? Friends, listen to me. (laughs) We probably all say things we're ashamed of, in private and in public. James 3, the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members, is that which defiles the entire body. is set on fire. The course of our life is set on fire by hell. The hardest thing to control is this thing right here. Is God first in the way I speak? Is he first in the way I worship? Is he first in the way I treat my spouse? Is he first in the way I spend my money? Is he first in the way I, I relish and care and relish and soak in his love? Is, what's the place of God in our life? That's the question I asked myself this week. And that's the question I think he's asking the book of Malachi is he wants to know if he is first in the lives of Israel. Um, before I close, you know I share the gospel every week, and I know, in a sense, it gets old, but it's not old news, it's good news. Um, if you do not know where your relationship with the God is, if you do not know where you stand with him, if you died today, um, if you don't know where you would go. Then Jesus Christ came and he died for you on the cross to pay for your sin in full. That if you would believe in him, that you would have eternal life, but not just eternal life, but earthly abundant life. For the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. And if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life, I can think of no better time. Praise Father, I, I pray for this morning, I, it's, it's just, a, it's Lord, I, um, I'm humbled, and Lord, the, the exporter of truth is your church, is in the lives we live and in the message we preach according to your word, and Lord, I pray that we would speak the truth in love, that we would not be afraid to be honest, we would not be afraid to be bold. And, Lord, I pray for those here this morning that they would not, no one would feel that I'm getting on to anybody or, or looking over people's shoulder. It's always a little weird when preachers talk about tithing and offering, and, and just, it really shouldn't be. And, uh, Lord, I just pray that we would just look at our lives, and we would see all the different areas, and just ask ourselves, are you first? Do you take precedent? Do you take precedent in my marriage? Do you take precedent in the way I give, in the way I, the way I speak? And Lord, I just pray for us this morning that if you're not supreme, I pray we would repent and we would obey. I pray for those that do not know you as Savior, that they will respond with faith today. In Jesus' name, amen.